Good day, and welcome to the University of Minnesota podcast, Minnesota CropCast. I'm your host, Dave Nikolai, with the University of Minnesota, Extension Educator in Field Crops. My co-host is Dr. Seth Nave. Seth is a soybean extension specialist here at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Agronomy. And Seth, uh, you've made some recent trips uh, overseas this last year or so, uh, certainly within this last fall, and I think uh, one of those trips, we were talking a little bit about expertise in terms of what you are doing when you are overseas. And we've invited a guest uh, on the podcast today, uh, Gordon uh, Denny. And Gordon will talk a little bit more about things that he v- sees in terms of his role as an independent consultant uh, in the soybean export field. So, Seth, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you take it from here, introduce our guest, and uh, both of you can talk a little bit about what you guys have been up to. Yeah, sounds good. So to you know, to set the record straight, Dave, I think you asked me if I wanted to talk about my recent trip uh, to Asia, and I and I was just too humble to take all of the limelight myself. You know, I'm I'm that kind of guy. So uh, I thought that maybe we should get somebody that actually knows what they're talking about in here to talk about uh, soybeans and exports and the change in in how our soybeans are utilized. So. I've had the chance on a couple occasions to uh, travel with Gordon Denny, and he's a real expert in in the in the soybean industry, and and his expertise is really highly sought after right now. It's a good time to be a consultant in his area because he's he's very up on what's happening with the U.S. Uh, crush and and uh, renewable fuels and the drive for more oil uh, in the U.S which is really important for our market. Uh, and it's gonna shift apart a lot of what's going on um, around, uh, not only in the US, but around the world. So I'm gonna invite Gordon Denny to introduce himself a little bit and uh, give us a history. That's the way uh, we run this show a little bit. We invite guests and have them provide a little bit of their own bio. So we'd, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Gordon, where are you from? And, uh, and how did you get to be in this seat where you're at today? Okay. Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, I've known Seth for 15 or 20 years. We've traveled together and, and talked with regard to soybean quality, quantity, volumes, that sort of thing. I'm fundamentally a backwoods Southern Indiana hillbilly farm kid. Grew up on a small uh, small farm where we actually fed soybean hay to our beef cattle. Um, so I've got 45 years of kind of hands-on soybean experience at some level. I um, Graduated from college, went into the United States Marine Corps for four years as an infantry officer. And out of college, I stupidly got out in 1980 at the height of the recession with 18% unemployment and 18% interest rates and gave up a regular commission to get into the soybean business. Um, And half of my career, uh, my 28-year career with Bungie, has been in the production, processing, plant manager side. And the other half has been in the commercial commodity trading. I was director of procurement my last role with Bungie. So I've been everything from cleaning out boot pits and and repairing equipment at the plant level to trading 450 million bushels of domestic soybeans a year for the domestic plants in in Bungie. So um, kind of a wide ranging experience. It is an excellent time to be a consultant. We've got uh, Two new processing plants that started up already this year and another 18 plants that are at least announced over the next three years with five new plants that are scheduled to start up in 2024. And obviously those are 
pretty far along in construction and likely to happen. I have never seen in my 45 years so much interest in soybeans. And a lot of that emanates from California and their renewable diesel mandates. There are uh, fundamentally four things that we can do to economically incentivize new industries. We can credits, mandates, subsidies, and tariff protection. We kind of did that with ethanol. We're definitely going to do all of that now with renewable diesel. And biodiesel and renewable diesel are different animals. Um, Biodiesel, where a good portion of soybean oil has gone over the last few years, is a 10 or 12% blend of, of uh, refined soybean oil that is blended in with petroleum diesel oil. Renewable diesel is 100% uh, oils or fats that has been further processed that is a drop-in replacement for petroleum diesel. So because of California mandates that all the diesels in California will have to, uh, you can no longer sell um, biodiesel or diesel fuels in California as of a certain date in the future, not that far out. So we're now seeing huge expansions. $3 billion worth of money has flowed into the soybean processing industry recently to build these 20 new facilities. Again, two this year that are already up and running and another 18 on the drawing boards at various stages. So uh, lots of money, lots of interest. Uh, the, the good thing is soybeans have two products, soybean oil and soybean meal. The bad side of it is soybeans have two products, soybean meal and soybean oil. So the demand for oil will disappear pretty readily, we think. The 25% increase in crush capacity from today will create 25% more soybean meal, so 13 or 14 million tons. And where that goes is the, is the big dollar question. Um, some will go domestically. Lots is going to have to go export. We need more. Uh, we need feathers are our primary consumer, obviously. 61% of soybean meal produced in the U.S. is fed to something with a feather, a turkey, a broiler, or a layer. 21% or so of domestic produced soybean meal goes into a pig. 7 to 8% each into cattle and dairy. And uh, things like aquaculture are very minimal. A 0.6% of today's production goes into aquaculture. Human consumption, maybe 1%, 1.5%. So feathers are our friends. And we have to increase poultry numbers in the U.S. We have to increase soybean meal inclusion rates in feed. We have to increase soybean meal exports, and we have to increase exports of meal, or I'm sorry, of pork and poultry. And we have to encourage our foreign users to increase their inclusion rates of meal as well. So that's the real challenge I see. Um, like Seth, I've been, to, I, I travel a bit. I primarily focus working with the, the soybean checkoff. Um, I retired 15 years ago. Um, and really enjoy soybean farmers. That's my strong prejudice to work with, with them and the Soybean Checkoff, which is both United Soybean Board and U.S. Soybean Export Council to help research and promotion of soybean products. I, this is really great. I think you really covered the overall situation really well for us, Gordon. I, I think we should 
back up a little bit and and maybe slice and dice some of the some of these pieces. There's a lot. I think we should follow up with a lot of these parts, but I, a lot of the folks uh, listening today probably don't know, um, don't aren't thinking about soybean meal and soybean oil on a daily basis like you and I do. So they may not think about where these things go. And so, you know, and I'm kind of a hobbyist of an economist. I don't know that I've ever really had a good uh, applied econ course in my, in my career. Uh, but for me, it's, it's a question about, you know, where is the, where's the path of least resistance for this extra meal? All right. So, what are your thoughts? Uh, you mentioned all these outlets for additional meal. If we have 25% more meal, I have a hard time thinking about us building herds overnight um, in the U.S. You know, we, I, we hear all about a lot of the friction there is with uh, development of large-scale animal agriculture in the country, local zoning, state zoning, federal man federal issues and things like that, mostly regulatory type things, uh, neighbor uh, issues. Um, and so just if we just take that piece, what, what, do, what are your thoughts on domestic demand and increasing herds uh, apart, from the, apart from the inclusion rate? What about numbers? Do you think we can do it? I, I think we're going to have to do it. And I think what will help is lower prices help things disappear. Um, and it helps people look at profitable. And if, if soybean meal is a 20 or maybe as much as a 25% inclusion into several rations, and it is, there is no better essential digestible amino acid feed product out there than soybean meal with the top nine or 10 or 11, however many essential amino acids you want to consider. So lower, there's three things I'm, well, there's several things that I think will happen as a result of this dramatic expansion. Certainly lower prices on soybean meal relative to other feed ingredients and relative to where it is today. Higher availability. We just, we're going to have a lot more plants cranking out a lot more meal and improved quality. And why do I say that? These newer plants with new equipment, I, and I, we've seen this already with a couple of the plants that have started up. They Their prices are relatively low because they're trying to buy their way into the market. Soybean processors don't like one another. They don't socialize and go on vacations and send each other Christmas gifts. They compete for the same beans with the same customers for meal and oil. So they realize to buy into a market they're going to have to be very competitive with good quality, good delivery, good prices. So if, if I were a producer of especially poultry, because that's, that is the best feed conversion ratios. That's our best meal consumptive uh, product. I would strongly consider building, expanding. Um, I know hogs have been, had a, had a, had a tough time for the past couple of years possibly, but at least the last several months, and their numbers are coming down. Poultry numbers keep leaking a little higher. It's a, it's an inexpensive, the meat of choice, it's healthy, it's easy to produce. So I'm very hopeful that we will see some domestic expansion of herds. And egg consumption keeps going up every year. That's a definitely a success story. Uh, broiler meat goes up. Turkeys can fluctuate a little bit with their profitability, and and uh, but 
lower prices will encourage people to to grow more poultry um, and increase the feed inclusion rates. Um, historically, soybeans, um, and this is kind of where we are today, the value in a bushel of soybeans, two-thirds of that comes from the meal. Soybean oil almost is always worth twice per pound what the meal is, but there's four times more meal. So all that equates out generally, historically. So 65 or 66% of the value of a bushel of beans is in the meal. The balance is in the oil. This past year, we got the parity, meaning 50-50, a couple of times, but it didn't last long. And right now, soybean meal is by far the, the most valuable component in a bushel of soybeans. And there's one reason. The drought in Argentina, so they've always been the number one exporter of soybean meal in the world for the last couple of decades. Um, 23 million metric tons or, or thereabouts. So without them having a crop to crush, and their, their crush margins were poor, their run times were poor, so they've had a lot of issues because of they, they grew half a crop last year. So I think until March or April, we'll continue to see U.S. soybean processors make really good margins. Three to four dollars a bushel have, have been obtainable here lately. That Argentine's inability to export meal will help the U.S. export meal. The oil has been a real surprise that it has been so weak. And I think that's because lots of substitutes. Canola oil is also under a big expansion in Canada. Um, so that uh, they, they're going to expand as much as 50% in their ability to produce a 42% oil canola crop, U.S. 20% soybeans, um, and again, a 25% general increase in crush capacity in the next three years of the U.S. soybean. So the bean basis is going to get better for the farmers. The amount of trucking or transportation costs a farmer has to get it to a plant will go down. The competitive nature of a processor, they're going to have to bid up and pay more for beans than they ever have to keep these plants running. So um, anyway, lots of dynamics. Most of it, unfortunately, is tied to government subsidies, mandates, tax credits, tariff protections that the renewable diesel, lower carbon intensity, increased sustainability, a lower global warming trends is necessitating. That's oh, that's good stuff. So Dave Dave has a question here for us. He wants. I, to I want to in. drop back and talk about some of the events where where both of you had had an opportunity to uh, to travel overseas. And you look at uh, developing markets, and of course, you know we we think right away about China, but it's more than just China in 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 terms of that. I know Seth that you've had an opportunity to talk to uh, poultry. Uh, producers, uh, suppliers, and so forth, some in Indonesia and other places. That's maybe meal-connected. Uh, would you say a lot of your uh, emphasis on some of these trade trips is more on building a demand, sustaining demand on, on the meal side than anything else when you, when you get across the Pacific Ocean to these various countries? What's, what's been your experience? Because and, and, uh, we were always curious, Seth, exactly what in the world you were doing out there besides just, you know, <laughs> going to these nice hotels. So, Well, I, I, I'm going to look to Gordon to back me up on some of this. But, you know, I think uh, we, I'd like to say that we're those of us that are working with the soybean industry in the U.S. are supporting the soybean industry broadly. 
and we know that exports are important of anything. So Gordon mentioned even meat exports. We're going to have to be supportive of meat exports. If we want to if we want to get more meal to disappear in the U.S., we're not going to eat more meat in the U.S. significantly. We're going to need to export the extra meat. So um, we have to we have to be prepared to talk about oil. We have to be prepared to talk about soybeans. We have to be prepared to talk about the meal fraction. And everybody and everybody has an inch. All these partners of ours overseas have interests. So. Um, you know, in, in North Asia and in China and Japan, Korea, Taiwan, they are soybean importers. They want the soybeans so that they can process those. And they're really interested in the oil for cooking oils. Um, they're interested in what Gordon has to say because they want, they're a little bit concerned that we're going to use up all our beans in the U.S. and there aren't going to be beans available for them. Um, you know, and then you go to Southeast Asia and the folks there are more interested in buying the meal. So of course they're looking at this a little bit differently. They think maybe this is an opportunity for them. And there's a lot of nuances to this. There's, you know, there's, I was in Japan and they're really interested in high oleic oil. So then you layer on the fact that you've got an increased, uh, uh, price for oil. And then, you know, then you have a specialty oil on top of that and, a really terrible exchange rate. It, it doesn't sound like it's something that they're going to be uh, able to afford, but of course there's a lot of interest in it. So I don't know, Gordon, maybe you can um, provide some more insight on what, what the buyers are looking for and what you can provide them for information. And, and before you answer that question, Gordon, talk about the fact that, you know, is soybean meal, soybean meal, soybean meal. In other words, is, our, is there soybean meal coming from upper Midwest or the U.S.? That much better or different? Is it, is it a price thing with a lot of these uh, buyers overseas where they could just say, well, if you're out of the market, we're going to go to XYZ uh, uh, country. You know, what is it about U.S. or, or Midwest uh, soybean meal that do we have an advantage other than price? I, I think there used to be a pretty dramatic spread. And again, I was a soybean buyer for Bungie for a lot of years and knew where to buy beans and where to kind of avoid beans or at least the value difference in that meal. This year, according to a guy named Dr. Seth Nave, um, the spread in quality has mitigated or moderated a bit. So what used to be the northern bean lower protein problem has maybe not whether it's seed varieties, growing conditions, uh, agronomic work, I, I don't know for sure. But the U.S. has the most consistent, reliable, dry, and a lot of our beans will come in at 10 or 11% moisture. Some came in at 8 and 9% this year. And if you're allowed 13% moisture when you sell it without a discount, for every 1% under 13 that you sell them or ship them, you lose about 1.3% of your contract value. The good thing is that's really good for a processor and the accountants. It's, it's generally bad for the farmer. I mean, he could lose 40 or 50 cents a bushel in opportunity loss at selling moisture at meal and oil price. But our offshore buyers realize that our beans are drier, have less field damage, have less heat damage. They're not stored in bags. Soybeans are our precious baby of commodities in that they get into the best bins with aeration and temperature cables, and we monitor them because they're worth $13, $14, $15 a bushel as opposed to corn or wheat. So 
South American beans out of Brazil. Again, it's a semi-tropical, uh, hot dry, uh, climate down there, very humid. So their beans sometimes get double dried, meaning they'll come in at 15 or 16%. They'll flash dry them down at high temperatures, maybe to get them down to 13. Well, it's still higher moisture than U.S., number one. Number two, that drying can kill the lysine availability, which is the primary protein amino acid component that nutritionists look for. Histori and it is a two-edged sword in that when we talk to customers, are they a meal customer or are they a soybean customer? And we have an advantage over Argentina with our meal production being more consistent, more, uh, the protein dispersibility index, the amino acid profile, the damage indicators, the urease activity, all those things that a nutritionist values are better than Argentina. Argentina, however, though, has some incentives to sell meal. They will, they will make sure the price comes down enough to incentivize their buyers. Um, a couple of trends that I, I wanted to mention here real quickly. In the U.S., two years ago, 48% of our total soybean production was exported. This year, well, it's down to 43% is the USDA projection. So 43% of our beans grown this year will be exported. 56% will be crushed and processed in the U.S. I expect those trends to kind of continue. We're always going to have beans to export, always. And we will never, ever run out of beans. We've never run out of beans in the U.S. We never will. Sometimes a poor buyer will run out of time to get them where they're available to where they're needed if they don't plan ahead well, but we never run out of beans and we will always have beans for export. But it also we have um, on the, on the soybean meal side of things, we will probably have to increase those exports dramatically this year. About 28% of the meal produced in the U S is, is projected to be exported that number will have to go up in the future. Um, we cannot, as Seth said, it, it's tough. There's a lot of uh, hurdles to overcome to expand poultry production and, pro and processing. Um, and COVID brought a lot of that to light. Um, a lot of the NIMBYs, not in my backyard, folks don't want production facilities in their backyard. So I do think egg production, broiler production, um, those are our real keys to being able to make some of this meal disappear. Our yields are outstanding in terms of the amount of oil that we get out of a bushel of beans, 11.75 to 11.8 pounds of oil per bushel is historically a, a really good number. So um, even though there's four times more meal um, and we have seen proteins, you just can't avoid it. Proteins historically have come down as the GMO trend and Roundup changed the priorities for growing beans. Field yields and processing yields are two different things. High field yields are good for the farmer. Processing yields with good protein and good oil is a big, big deal for the processor. I, I want to back up to one thing that you mentioned earlier that I that I had not considered before in terms of this uh, extra um, meal availability because I, I keep getting hung up on these new plants being um, you know where they're located and things like that but the reality is all plants are going to increase their total run and they're going to be producing more more meal 
And in the U.S., which is quite different from what we see in Argentina or in China, our processors are mostly around where the beans are, and they're relatively close to where the animals are. So there's going to be a lot of meal out in the country close to where these animals are produced. So I think, you know, it, it just feels like, um, you know, it, it, it feels like it's going to be good for our animal industry. And I, I know it, these things are very complicated and, and how they end up playing out relative and who, who ends up being the winner and the loser in this. It seems like the farmer never is able to gain, whether the farmer or the animal producer, they, they don't ever seem to be the ones that win out of these things, but hopefully they can capture a little bit of this extra value themselves. Yeah, I think hedgers, basis traders, probably, uh, I'm not super bullish priced because if Brazil really does have 163 million metric ton crop going in the ground, I don't believe that. I think it's going to be 155-ish, uh, but still, between Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, Uruguay, I mean, they're going to have a record crop out of South America, period. The El Nino situation, uh, and El Nino typically gives Argentina really good yields. So all those considerations, um, but again, we've got these plants, they're coming online. The farmer cash basis is definitely going to get better, regardless of the CME price. Um Crusher margins right now are outstanding, um, so they want to run hard as they can. We run typically in the United States on a 365-day calendar year. A plant will run 350 days at about a 92, maybe a 93% of maximum crush capacity. And that's what I use in my spreadsheet calculations. Argentina runs 50 to 60% because they're up and down with politics and running out of beans and are they going to uh, push for the export tax? What's the currency exchange rate du jour? Is it the blue rate? Is it the bean rate? Is it the, you know, so the farmers will sit on beans to try and optimize it. If they dollarize their economy, which the, the current brand new president has already backed off of that promise, I'm not sure that's good for the U.S. because it makes them run more consistently. Last year, U.S. processors didn't run quite as well, which is surprising, at only about 88% of their maximum crush capacity on a 350-day crush year. I predict, and, and my job as a plant manager was to de-bottleneck. Do I need a bigger conveyor? Do I need another hammer mill? Do I need more solvent and pump capacity? What is my limiting factor to increase my crush? So U.S. plants have been doing that forever, but the last two or three years, they've been doing it in earnest. So lots of plants have expanded, lots of new plants, more on the way. All this new demand is good for the farmer, even though the prices, and the prices are, as you mentioned here earlier, um, Brazil got a, got a sprinkle today. So what happens in Chicago? The prices come down. Um, they need a lot more showers and rains down there to really have a good crop. But most pundits I talk with and articles I read, the USDA is high at 163 million metric tons. I wouldn't surprise me if their next WASD report doesn't show 160. And we probably will end up in the 155 to 158 million metric tons. Still a big crop, but not as big as it looks today. Um, and you're feeling on Argentina. If I read between the lines what you're saying in Argentina, is Argentina is going to produce the beans and they're going to 
eventually find their way through the processor and get put on the market as meal. And it may be a little bit painful for them because of farmers holding on to it based on, on currency exchange or based on taxation. Um, but the Argentines know how to make soybeans. They're not going to all switch to corn on corn. It's going to be, it's, it's a corn, it's a soybean economy and they're going to continue to grow soybeans. If they have the right environment, they're going to produce a lot of soybeans that are going to mm-hmm. make them make their way to the market as, as meal and oil primarily. Is that, is that a good summary? Absolutely. And the biggest processors in the U S are also the biggest processors in Argentina. Um, I mean, ADM, Bungie, Cargill, they all got uh, Dreyfus. They've all got vested interests. Some of the largest plants in the world are down there. Uh, they wharf in size to the large U.S. plants, so they can really crank out meal when they want to. Again, the quality isn't good, and some of our offshore customers have come back and said, I can't afford that cheap meal. That sounds like an oxymoron, but when they say they can't afford that cheap meal, their feed conversion ratios drop precipitously because they're inconsistent, because the protein availability is bad. The lysine in the meal has been killed with double drying of the beans. There's heat damage. There's damage. There's Anyway, there's, the quality isn't there. If you're purely a price buyer and you don't care about sustainability or carbon intensity, then you're probably going to buy Brazil beans at Argentine meal. If you care about sustainability, carbon intensity, good product quality, and you have good communications in your company up and down the value chain from the buyer to the nutritionist, then you're going to buy U.S. beans and meal. It's quality um, equals price plus value. And our value is superior when you look at the quality plus the price. But that's a tough message. It's it's we've been working it a long time and we're we're trying, um, but we haven't got it through all the way. I I want to come back to one other thing you mentioned. That I think is important for folks to think about is is you you mentioned that you know basically this new scenario with an oil driven market um, is is based on governmental policy and and really it's rooted in in California policy. And so the, I think a lot of listeners might think that that sounds kind of temporary. Uh, but you also mentioned investment in terms of new processors. And what I've been shocked about is the, the investment costs for some of these refiners. And so uh, it's not just the local processors, the AGPs and the Bungies and, and ADMs and Cargills, but it's some of the big names in petroleum that are putting s- some of the real money into this. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And I've never seen the marriage of petroleum refiners and agricultural companies like we have going on now, even with the biodiesel trend that started 20, 25 years ago. So, but here's my conundrum, my confusion that we are producing and exporting more petroleum oil today than we ever have in their history. And the petroleum companies are investing more into exploration and extraction now than they ever have. So, What do they know that we don't know? Uh, I also know that petroleum companies, um, they they make their money off of petroleum. Now, granted, (laughs) they they realize they've got to do a lot of blending and that renewable diesel is coming. California, you know, we have both state and federal mandates. The federal were relatively low. Everybody was disappointed. 
But then California and Oregon and Washington and the others jumped up and, and helped out. And it looks like that trend will continue. But my concern is in 10 or 15 years, when California says, okay, no more diesel trucks because the technology on battery semis has gotten better. What do we do with renewable diesel at that point? Well, I think it transitioned into sustainable aviation fuel, um, maybe along with some ethanol. I, I don't know the technology that well, who can transition and what the cost today SAF, sustainable aviation fuel, costs three and a half times what kerosene does, what, what jet fuel does. So the economics of it, the economics of biofuels absolutely doesn't work today without the government mandates, tax credits, and subsidies. It just doesn't. Is it the right thing to do because of sustainability and carbon intensity and global warming? Yes. But that's a relative yes. I mean, at, at some point, do we all want to pay double the price of a ticket to fly in an airplane? Um, if the fuel is three and a half times more expensive, I, I don't know. So, But I've got a list of 15 reasons. I'm not going to read them all. Why the soy expansion craze might have peaked here temporarily. We have to wait and see in the next three years how this soybean meal disappearance and the impacts on profitability. Instead of two-thirds of the value of a bushel of beans being towards meal, which it is today, that could drop down to 20%. I mean, I don't, I don't know where we're going to end up, but meal has got to go away. But the unknowns of future U.S. EPA and state mandates, big, big concern. The worries about so much crush increase so quickly from so many players. The lower crush margins, which is inevitable, uh, and there is no food versus fuel concern in my mind. Actually, fuel, renewable diesel, is subsidizing food prices and protein prices in particular. So the renewable diesel subsidies and mandates will lower the price of food worldwide, not just in the U.S. And if you look at the, 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 um, the veggie meat folks, whether it's Impossible, Beyond Meat, Benson Hill, whoever, they're not doing well. And I think they've that industry is ripe for consolidation and merger and figuring out which products are shelf viable and which aren't. So um, it's, again, I've never seen in my 45 years such a state of flux and so many outside factors. Several of them are very positive. Some of them make me wake up in the middle of the night and I, I just, I don't go back to sleep very well. Yeah, I, there's a lot going on. I mean, we didn't, you know, we didn't even touch on shipping. We didn't talk about uh, Ukraine. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just shows and very little about the weather. Uh, so I think if we would have had this conversation uh, 20 years ago, we probably would have focused on weather and some political things in South America. And that probably would have been than most of our conversation here. But this has been really, really, really interesting. I think we we probably want to cut it off because I I want to have you come on and we can have a more uh, focused discussion on, on one of these topics at a later time. And uh, especially some of this later discussion we've had here about, um, you know, food versus fuel debate, I think is, is something that we want to take up on this uh, podcast. I think it'd be really fun. Um, because I think there's there's such interest, uh, uh, such such 
uh, differences in opinion about um, about how this thing should should play out with with uh, energy and uh, and and food production across the landscape, even among even among farmers right out in the community. So uh, we we want to thank you. I think David would like to give you a, a thanks. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Come on back again, Gordon. We can talk about domestic sure. demand, uh, how to grow that. Uh, aviation fuel, whatever it, it needs to be there, uh, what life is like for you in Colorado, all those good <laughs> things. Uh, and uh, we, we could certainly, uh, there's no there's no end of subject matter when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, the soybean world uh, in terms of uh, growth and development in here. So once again, uh, thanks for joining us uh, today on Minnesota CropCast. Uh, uh, this has been an opportunity to visit with uh, a Crop consultant, independent consultant, uh, whatever else, Gordon, you want to go by these days, uh, but certainly consultant in the industry uh, and to a lot of universities. Uh, Gordon, Danny, we appreciate uh, taking time to uh, uh, visit with us here on again, and we'll have you back again. Uh, this is Dave Nikolai with University of Minnesota, uh, Extension uh, Crops Educator, and my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, University of Minnesota Extension Soybean Specialist. And thanks again to our special guest, uh, Gordon, all the way from uh, joining us on uh, Colorado uh, in terms of that, but uh, well-known in the uh, industry. So thanks again, and we look forward to visiting with you in the future, and uh, have a good day. Thank you. My pleasure.